Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Now, today we are going to do a lot of clarification of a lot of facts. I have with me today my guest, Dr. Kathleen Rasmussen. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you for your uh, coming. My pleasure. Let me tell you just a little bit about this woman. She is just hugely accomplished, and I have been a fan of her work for many years, and I really was just delighted to be able to have her on the podcast today. She holds a doctoral degree from uh, Harvard. She is a registered dietitian, and she is currently the Nancy Schlegel Menning Professor of Maternal and Child Nutrition at Cornell University. Her research and graduate-level teaching focuses on maternal and child nutrition, and particularly on the mother. Professor Rasmussen's major intellectual contributions to the study of pregnancy and lactation have been recognized by both the Agnes Higgins Award, that would be from the American Public Health Association, and the Macy Giorgi Award, which is from the International Society for Research of Human Milk and Lactation. So you can tell that this is a person who is well-published as well as well-grounded because she's going to be talking to us today about a topic that I call pump and feed. So, Dr. Rasmussen, thank you for coming. I have in my hand your uh, recent article called Breastfeeding But Not at the Breast, Mother's descriptions of providing pumped human milk to their infants via other containers and caregivers. And I should also give credit to uh, her other uh, colleagues, especially Dr. Julia Felice and others who have also been part of that, uh, that study. So we have a lot to learn here uh, because this is something which uh, you know, a decade ago, mothers had babies at the breast, and oh, by the way, if the baby could not be at the breast, then the mother was pumping. That is not the case today. We see women pumping even though their babies are at term and capable of suckling and might even be suckling at least at some point. But let's start from the top. Uh, what do we know and how do we know about how many women are pumping and for how long? Okay, well, I'd like to begin, first of all, not only by thanking Dr. Felice, whose work you just mentioned, this was her doctoral dissertation research, uh-huh. but several of my other graduate students whom we'll encounter today, and especially my primary clinical collaborator, Dr. Sheila Garrity, who runs oh, yeah. the Breastfeeding Medicine Clinic at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Hospital, yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, how do we know how many women are pumping? Um, The primary piece of data, primary source of data we have is the infant feeding, um, I have infant feeding practices study two. Um, 
which uh, was finished more than 10 years ago, and that gave us an estimate of about um, 80% of mothers ever pumped in the first, say, four and a half months their baby was um, alive. Well, all these babies are alive, but first uh, I know of age, yes. there we go. Yes. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. The way the questions were asked was not ideal, and better questions, which another of my graduate students, Elizabeth O'Sullivan, have developed, suggest that the numbers are probably a bit higher than that. Mm. That many, the vast majority of women are feeding at the breast and pumping simultaneously in various proportions of one and the other. So it's fair to six months. It's fair to say that for American women, the vast majority are having uh, a pumping experience at some point with details to follow. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that brings us to the details then. What do we know about the duration, that is, how long, how many days, months, whatever are they pumping, and the intensity, like once a day, 100 times a day, what are we talking about here? Well, it ranges from providing all of the um, food and, of course, all, therefore, of the human milk that the baby receives, and that woman could be pumping four times a day and be pretty uncomfortable doing so because her breasts aren't aren't designed to handle that. Or she could be pumping a dozen times a day or as often as she might breastfeed, which could be even longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, the number of times a day she pumps will be constrained by her choices about whether she's doing this occasionally or she's desperately trying to build up some kind of stash of milk. Or whether she just wants to leave a bottle so she can go out to the movies um, on the weekend. Um, so that's the range of behavior. You asked about starting and stopping, and it turns out this is really complicated. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the first time we published something around the, about this, it came from um, Dr. Garrity's observations among her own patients. And she found that unlike breastfeeding, which is a behavior you start and you continue genuinely genuinely, at some greater or lesser level until you finally stop. Pumping is something women do episodically. They start and then they mm-hmm. stop. They may not do it for a while. They can start again. They can stop again. So this makes figuring out how women behave as pumpers very different than trying to figure out how they behave as women who are feeding at the breast. So we we really do know that they start and stop. They have different patterns of starting and stopping one to another. It's very complicated. And that's yes. difficult to measure. Yes. So it's that episodic characteristic that uh, makes it less than straightforward. Yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. Uh, I was very intrigued with what you talked about as related to, and I know that there was an ar- earlier article, which I believe was maybe not yours, about the reasons why women breastfeed. But I was rather intrigued in your uh, study that it seemed to me that you were saying, no, it's not quite that simple to just say, this is the reason. I almost wondered and I'm trying to find it here without clattering too many papers, but it almost seemed to me, oh, I see. I wrote a little note in the uh, 
the margin that said cause or consequence, because Mm -hmm. you've said here, however, these studies only provided data about mother's reasons for pumping. Our findings suggest that motivations for feeding pumped human milk to infants do not always relate to mother's motivations for pumping. Can you explain that? Uh So women, um, let me try this again. (laughs) so women might be motivated to pump to go back so as they can go back to work right that's a very typical Mm -hmm. right they might be motivated to pump to provide themselves a little bit of cushion if they want to do something else now and then Mm -hmm. they may want to share parenting with their husband or share feeding with a one of the baby's grandparents. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things are reasons to pump, but they might like that aspect of pumping, but not necessarily want to feed their baby pumped milk. They might rather feed their baby milk straight out of the breast. But if you want these other people to do it, there's a pump in the middle. So uh-huh. I think you're saying that, and, and I've heard this many, many times from many women. Uh, my husband wants to give the baby a bottle. My mother is here. I'm going back to work, et cetera, et cetera. You're saying that that is more related to the circumstance, uh-huh. but it's not necessarily a motivator. It's just they're reacting to the circumstance. They're reacting to the circumstance. And what we're seeing now, okay. and this is part of Dr. Felice's research is that the pumps are expensive enough and before the um, Affordable Care Act covered them um, unobtainable enough that many women receive breast pumps as a shower gift, a baby shower gift. Oh, yes, definitely. And they find that once there's a pump in the house, they're expected to use it, whether they plan to use it or not, or whether they plan to use it now or not. So you wind up with a woman who's just come home from the hospital. She's trying to start her own breastfeeding, feeding at the breast experience. And there's a pump in the house. So grandma's visiting and now grandma wants to feed the baby. But mom has no idea how to combine this feeding at the breast experience that's new for her and not yet stable with having to put the pump in the picture. And that is very confusing for women and a difficult thing to manage, even if two months from now, from now it might be no problem at all. I agree. I agree. And I'm thinking, too, that I have sometimes used the phrase choosing to pump. But as I hear you talking right now, I'm thinking, you know, maybe they don't necessarily choose in a way that is a decision. Maybe it's just a somewhat of a default. The pump mm-hmm. is there. Am I hearing that? Um, that might be the case. Um, Dr. Felice characterized the reasons women pumped into two categories. One she called elective. I want to okay. go to the movies. That's elective. Sure. Or okay. I want my husband to have the opportunity to parent by feeding or my mother or mother-in-law. Right. That's elective. That elective. Usually, unless, unless those individuals are actually the substitute care providers, those are elective reasons. But um, a non-elective reason is I have to go back to work. Right. 
or um, I have to pump now because I'm going to be taking a drug for some period of time and I need my baby to have a supply of milk while he can't have it while I'm on the drug. Okay, sure. As as two examples. But those are things where if the woman was left to her own choices, she wouldn't want to have to She wouldn't want to do it. Right, 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 right. Well, and... As I have said many times on this podcast, I have never heard a woman tell me that she's in love with her pump. That's just, <laughs> you know, uh, but there are women who pump exclusively. Oh, definitely. That is to say they feed oh, all yes. their milk yes. via the pump in the, yeah. um, by using a pump. The Infant Feeding Practices 2 study said it was 6% of women. And the latest uh, data that I have from um, Dr. O'Sullivan are about 7 to 8%. Mm. It's not a giant number of women, but sometimes, I mean, I've read examples of women who, let's say, had a preterm baby, got used to using the pump, and just said, okay, I'll just pump the next time. Mm-hmm. There are other women who aren't comfortable mm-hmm. with a baby at their breast, or they're not comfortable with the idea of a baby at their breast, for whatever reason. So there are some women for whom the pump is the desired solution, they intend to pump and they intend to pump exclusively. Agreed. All the way to the woman who never wants to touch a pump. Ever. Right, 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 right. I would totally agree. As you were talking, uh, I was thinking, well, first of all, one nurse's observations do not a study make. Uh But (laughs) that being said, I just talked to a young mother here just a few weeks ago where it seemed to me that She did not use these words, but it seemed to me that she was saying, no, I don't ever want to put the baby to the breast. I want to pump my milk so that I can be in control of the schedule. That is not uncommon. And one of the things that you might see in women who are becoming mothers today is wanting to have control of their bodies control of the schedule Mm -hmm. they're trying to make a lot of different things work between their transportation and their work maybe they're also going to school they might or might not have a partner Um, this is a solution to that Um, a lot of people also a lot of women also don't want to be controlled by the baby oh most definitely and I have a bit of trouble understanding that because when you become a parent, you are controlled <laughs> by the baby. That's a fact of life. Right. So um, you can either give into it or you can pump, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, probably a generational thing. Well, I must say, though, even when I was a young nurse, I got called a lot for a, quote, breastfeeding problem, which was really more of a new parenting problem. And the fact of the matter is that this little baby is entirely dependent upon you. And so to that, in that context, yes, the baby does have some control of you because Mm -hmm. you can't just send him to the shower this morning. You know, he's... Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> you're the one that has to give him the bath, uh, that sort of thing. and yet, But more to the point, he can't feed himself. He can't feed himself, exactly. Um, yes, much more to the point. And yet, I was also interested in your study where you, you talked about the fact 
that when they left the baby with a caregiver, that actually then the caregiver ended up having more control. But we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. Hey, everybody, do not go away. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with Dr. Kathleen Rasmussen, and we will be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with Kathy Rasmussen, Rasmussen, and we are talking about women who are pumping. So, 
Dr. Rasmussen, one of the things that I often hear women talk about is their stash. And their stash of milk is seemingly never enough in their head. Some of them have a particular number of ounces that they want to be able to stash. Others are just counting how many ounces are actually already stashed and so forth. So uh, I want to know, what do mothers do with their stash of pumped milk if the babies don't need it? Uh, And what's the consequences of these uh, choices? Oh, is that a big question? When, <laughs> it when, is. Uh, when Dr. Garrity and I started uh, down this road, we just really had no idea about this. So some women at, I'll call it the low extreme, will save my, save their stash to dole it out in the next several months whenever their baby is sick. Functionally, they are treating their frozen milk as medicine Not for their sudden. baby. Yes, Makes perfectly good sense. Sure. All right. So the the next group of women who have a stash now are faced with what to do with their liquid gold. Mm -hmm. And they have choices that women feeding at the breast never had. There was never anything extra. It left the breast right into the baby's mouth, and that was the end of the story. So some women will donate their milk to a milk bank, if there's a milk bank that's nearby, if they are approved as donors for the milk bank. There are now commercial milk banks Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. to which they can donate or sell their milk. That that milk is very carefully screened. Yes. um, Before it's used and then um, sold. They can share their milk with a neighbor. Now, they might be sharing their milk at the breast for if it was a very short situation. But if they've already stopped feeding their own baby at the breast and stopped pumping and they just have a stash that they want to give away, they can give that stash. So that we call mm-hmm. that sharing milk. Sharing. That's what Share, I call it. Sharing yep. the expressed milk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so basically they're donating it to another person as opposed to a milk bank. Mm-hmm. And then last but hardly least, they can sell their milk. Mm-hmm. And that uh, might seem like a good thing to the person who's doing the selling because it human milk fetches a pretty good price on the Internet. But the flip side of the person receiving the milk is a different story. Absolutely. That raises a whole ethical situation that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Yeah. Now, no. I can talk more about that if you want me to, but uh, <laughs> you asked well, me to lay out the landscape, so I laid yes. out the landscape for you. Well, I guess I'm also thinking about uh, when I had Dr. Ann Eglish on the, the podcast. She, of course, was the lead author writing about the storage of human milk. And I said, what do I tell these mothers who say to me, Marie, I have milk that is four years old sitting in my freezer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, What that tells me is that somehow this this stash, apparently women have a feeling that they're going to run out of milk somehow. Mm -hmm. And so they just keep it there. I've also talked to mothers who have said, oh, yes, I put it on my toddler's cereal. Uh, my husband took it to work one time with him and, when he put, and put it in his coffee when he didn't realize what it was and all this other stuff, you know? So, but there's no, there's no reason not to use this milk on your own baby's baby cereal. Absolutely. I mean, it would absolutely. be a perfectly fine thing to do. 
I would totally agree. And uh, if I implied otherwise, I was mistaken. Uh, She did, however, say if you're going to ask your four-year-old to drink it, just remember it might not taste very good. And she equated it to ice cream and so forth. But from a safety standpoint, not a problem. Not a problem. I also personally wonder if there's a big difference between two years and four years. But anyway, so uh, do you think that uh, there is a difference between the milk that is obtained from pumping versus the milk that is obtained when the baby is doing what I would call direct breastfeeding. He is at the breast, he is suckling. and I like the term at the breastfeeding okay. because breastfeeding is by its nature direct, if that's what you mean. Okay, okay, we'll go but with that. That's my preference, and we have a paper published in Breastfeeding Medicine on the subject. Oh, yes. Is, is that the one that's coming out in 2020? No, no that it's already, one out. That's, it's already yeah. out. It's about well, I, technology. Uh, but, yes, but I in, saw that one. In any I... case, there is a difference between milk that's pumped and milk that's not pumped. The, the milk that's the. If you were to take, we did, we have done an experiment. This is one of my graduate students, Sarah Reyes. This isn't not published yet, but she did an experiment where she randomly assigned women to either pump first in a series of two pumpings with their own pump, or with a hospital grade pump that had a sterile kit on the as the collecting material. Okay. And we have to say that some women have pump setups at home that are perfectly sterile, and some women have pump setups at home that are anything but. Agreed. And that relates to how they clean them. Yes. Um, so when you just pump your milk in your home setup and you compare it to the hospital sterile setup, you find out that it is already changed because mm-hmm. it has added bacteria in it from zero to quite substantial bacteria in it. They come from the mother's skin. They come from the mother's hands. They come primarily from the pump. Mm-hmm. Some of these are innocuous and some of them are not. Are not. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. But now that's just right then. If the mother were to take the bottle in which she received the, the pumped milk, put a nipple on the top, let's assume it's sterile, and she fed it to the baby. But that's not what mothers do. Mothers don't pump milk and then sit there and feed it to their own baby out of a bottle. <laughs> no, they don't. They pump no. the milk. They right. store. They transfer it into another container. They store it some various different ways. Then they have to warm it up and transfer it to another container before they feed the baby. So by the time it gets to the baby, it's really quite different than it is when you start out on this journey of, I just got it in my now, let us hope, sterile collection kit. I was astonished when I saw in your study that the milk could undergo six different containers. I don't know if containers is the right word, but six different places that it existed as many as six times. Right. And with each one of those, it probably changes temperature. Right. So milk right. is a living fluid. There are cells in the milk. These are cells right. from the mother's body. They're immune cells and stem cells, all kinds of other goodies in there that help babies stay healthy. And some of them are uh, killed with freezing. Some of them are killed with heat. Um, some of them don't survive light. <laughs> some right. of the micronutrients right. don't survive light. Right, absolutely. So, 
every time you do that, some um, some portion of the milk, maybe important, maybe not important, changes. Mm-hmm. Um, unfunctionally becomes unavailable to the baby. So the more times you have to do this, the more the less it's like the milk that just came out of the breast into a sterile container. And so that suggests to mothers that they they would be wise to make a plan at the outset for how this milk is going to be used. And if it's eventually going to be frozen, they should just freeze it. Put it right in the freezer container and put it in that stash. Okay. Um, if they're going to use it right away, then it should go in the refrigerator. Um, and when they're ready to use it, that's the time to thaw it. Yes, right. You're saying don't thaw it too far ahead. Don't thaw it too far ahead. Thaw it when you're when you're sure you're going to use it sometime really fairly soon. Yes. Now, I, now for example, if a woman were to take several of her little plastic baggies that have human milk in it and her milk in it, and she were going to take it to her care provider and give her those in a cooler. Over time, they're going to warm up slowly, but for the most part, they're going to be pretty cold, cold until the caregiver chooses to warm the milk up to, to feed it. Mm-hmm. That's about the best you can do. I want to talk a little, or maybe a lot, uh, about the idea of the baby controlling how much milk he takes in. I've seen some research on this. I've also seen some babies And I've also been a nurse who has fed. I have no idea how many kids I have fed by bottle. And I can tell you that when I am the caregiver, if I coax the baby a little, he'll take some more. If Mm -hmm. I just kind of let him, you know, do his own thing, he's probably going to take a little less. And so I think that the caregiver has some... um, influence, if you will, over how much milk the baby is taking. So what about, I I hear you, you're absolutely right about the the cells, the micronutrients and so forth. But what about the obesity factor? We have got an epidemic of obese kids here in the United States. So what do we know about how much the baby will take by bottle that he might not have taken that much if he were at the breast? So we know um, that once you put it in the bottle, there is um, dual control over what the baby takes. Mm-hmm. At the breast, the baby takes what the baby's going to take. Yes. And that's that. You can put him back on the breast, and if he doesn't want it, poof, he's gone. <laughs> All right. That's that. Anybody who's fed at the breast will tell you this. Tell you that. Absolutely. All right. With a bottle... There's shared control between the baby and the caregiver. The baby may straight away empty the bottle, and then the baby, you would say, if the baby did that without coaxing, the baby is in control. But as soon as the bottle's half empty and the baby's now disinterested, and the caregiver, co- I can't say coerces, but encourages the encourages. baby to more. Mm-hmm. The, the caregiver is taking some of that control from the baby. Absolutely. And there has been a study done by Roe Lee and her oh, colleagues yeah. from the Centers for Disease Control mm-hmm. that suggests that it's, it's um, this is again data from the Infant Feeding Practices Study too, that babies who um, 
receive their milk in a bottle, consume systematically more, and are heavier than babies who do not receive their milk in a bottle. Um, and we knew this about formula-fed babies compared to breastfed babies, but there there are two differences, the bottle and the formula that's right. in it. Right. Now we have a comparison that's only with and without the bottle. Right. And we see that babies that are fed human milk with a bottle are um, taking more and becoming heavier than babies who are not fed with a bottle. And part of that is probably the caregiver. But we also have to realize that both mothers and caregivers think mother's milk is liquid gold. Right. But they might, be, they might be feeding to different ends because the at the breastfeeding mother, let's assume she's more or less continually present in reasonable distance of her baby. In that circumstance, if the baby doesn't take it all now, the baby can take more later. Later. It's not a big sure. deal. Right. There's there's no bottle to clean. There's no nothing to warm up. You know, pop the baby on the breast and he has another snack. But in the in the caregiving situation where the caregiver may be taking care of more than one baby, more than one baby. Yep. they want to feed that baby and be done feeding that baby and move on to whatever else they have to do. And so that's a situation in which a snack now and more later is not how they how it works for them. And this uh, creates problems for the mother because suddenly they sometimes feel like they don't have enough milk to meet the caregiver's expectations. And if the yes. caregiver's feeding the baby more than the baby would take, that creates a, a dissonance between or a discrepancy between what the mother's usually producing and what the caregiver wants to feed the baby. Well, this qualitative uh, information was so great because I noticed that in one of the quotes from one of the mothers, it seemed to me that she was saying that the caregiver was saying, well, we gave the baby the four ounces. Oh, now the five ounces. Oh, so maybe we need to bump it up to the six ounces. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> but, I, but I was thinking to myself, wait, hold on. Maybe that baby just had a uh, a growth spurt. and the Which care- they do. <laughs> which they do. And I'm thinking maybe the mother and or the caregiver are presuming that th- this is an upward, that it's going to be more uh, another ounce every single time or every week or every whatever. And it just, it isn't like that. It just isn't. But so, it, 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 it truly, it is not like that. Right. But unless the caregiver is flexible enough to understand that the baby drank five hours yesterday, five ounces yesterday okay. to cover his growth spurt. And today he's back down to the four ounces um, and the four ounces is what is needed in the future. Uh, if you assume it's five ounces, it's going to be five ounces. That's but right. Mom may not have five ounces to give without a little more lead time. Yeah, I totally agree. That really disturbed me because I was just thinking you cannot presume that this is going to be a bigger volume or or I should say a need for the bigger volume. And then, of course, you're right. The mother thinks that she doesn't have enough milk. And... Um, yeah, sometimes babies just have growth spurts. They just do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much misunderstanding around this. Oh, wow. Uh, hey, everybody, do not go away. I'm Marie Biancuzo. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Rasmussen, and we are talking about mothers pumping their milk, and we will be right back with way more questions and way more answers. Uh, so don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Mm-hmm. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom and my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here today with Professor... Kathleen Rasmussen, and we are talking about mothers who pump their milk. So we really hammered on the idea of the obesity, and I agree. I'm thinking that Rosie Lee's 
uh, article that came out, Dr. Lee's article that came out several years ago, did make that real clear that babies do consume more milk and so therefore that risk for obesity is greater. But let's talk about some other advantages and disadvantages for the mother, for the mother of milk expression, that is usually pumping, uh, in addition to or instead of feeding at the breast. So um, let me let me just clarify a little bit that Dr. Lee's study is not a randomized experiment. It's oh, obs- it's observational. Yeah, it was observational. Yep. It certainly suggests that babies who are fed human milk in a bottle might be a bit heavier than babies who are fed all their human milk at the breast. Okay, and, and so you so, asked. Uh, let me just clarify for those who might not understand: an observational study does not ever prove cause and effect. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It might okay. suggest suggest it. Yeah. Suggest the the direction of the change, but if you want to prove it, you need to do a different kind of um, research. Yeah. So yeah. you asked about um, what pumping involves for mothers. Well, when mothers um, produce milk, whether the baby removes it or the pump removes it they are still creating milk. So mothers who are um, lactating, that means they're making milk, they're going to generally lose weight because they are um, creating a caloric deficit from doing that that most women don't make up. They, um, they might be really hungry, but they're still transferring enough calories to that milk that it makes a difference. So you might expect an advantage for mothers is that they will lose more weight than if they were not uh, making milk. Uh-huh. Uh, some women uh, take that to an extreme and um, keep pumping after they actually want to feed their baby the milk because they want the weight loss advantages. Um, what pumping also means for mothers is that they have to manage the pumping relative to the breastfeeding, and then they have to manage the pump and the pumped milk. And those are three different tasks. So managing the pumping versus the breastfeeding means that they have to think about what their baby would normally receive in the period between when they last fed their baby at the breast and when they're next going to feed their baby at the breast in terms of acquiring enough milk to be able to feed their baby tomorrow or next week at that same time of day. Um, And since when the baby's at the breast, you really don't know how much milk he is consuming, it's mom's best guess. But they're now pumping the milk in a circumstance that's not as advantageous as having the baby at the breast. They're probably in some kind of work circumstance that could be maybe okay, but it's still not the baby at the breast, or it could be really not okay and very stressful. Mm-hmm. So managing this, um, the pumping when the mother isn't at home and isn't in a comfortable situation is um, difficult. All right, now she has she has the pump. She has to manage the pump and the pump parts and the milk. So let's say she just pumped. She now has this milk in a container. She has to contra- transfer it to a storage container and keep it cold until she can 
take it home and refrigerate or freeze it or feed it to the baby if that's what she's trying to do. Um, She has to keep all those pieces clean, and she has to remember to take them with her. She might have to store them in a refrigerator in her office. She may feel uncomfortable doing that. Um, She may not have a refrigerator, which is safe to do that. Um, That causes women stress, Mm -hmm. at least Mm -hmm. until they get the situation uh, resolved. Um, Women who pump their milk work in factories. They work in agricultural settings. They work in offices that are private. You've got the entire range of what women are are doing. Um, So that's managing the milk. Next, she has to manage the pump. Women who have a regular workplace might have two pumps, a new Uh, pump, and maybe an older used pump. Mm -hmm. The breast pumps that women are um, able to buy in the United States are not meant to be used by multiple users. Oh, yes. Uh, which means they are not as clean as they we would hope they would be. Um, that second pump may not be as good as the other pump. Um, some women experience that. They're very, women are very sensitive to the quality of the pump they have. They say it makes a lot of difference to them. I've heard that but, too. Mm-hmm. But if they have a pump that they can keep at work, they don't have to transfer it back and forth. But if they do, then they have to transfer it back and forth. If they should forget, it can be a major problem for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once they get the pump home, they have to clean all the associated parts. And I don't know. I remember being a new mother not pumping and just thinking that was really hard enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> With the sleep deprivation and managing the extra laundry and another person and in the household, it, it was it was a lot of work. And so to come home at night and have to manage those pump parts is a challenge for women, as you might expect. Absolutely. And they have to be scrupulously clean. Um, now there are ways in which you can clean them. For example, one of the pump manufacturers, Medela, makes a bag you can put your parts in. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Microwave yep. and zippity-doo-dah, they're really, they're very clean. But they're not free, these bags. No, they're very um, expensive. And if you don't do it exactly right, what you will find is that you can uh, have that little gizmo uh, turn into a little potato chip. It's very easy to overdo it in the microwave. Oh, goody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I usually tell people, if you're going to do that, make sure you do it exactly by the directions and or have a a backup set (laughs) just in case. Well, yeah, and and none of this is free. And I think a lot of women are choosing to feed the baby their milk, Uh imagining breastfeeding, even feeding at the breast is free. And even feeding at the breast is not free because mom needs more food than she would otherwise need. And she will still lose weight with that in general. Um, But once you add the pump or the pumps and the setups and the time. Paraphernalia. Yep. All of that stuff um, makes the financial calculus and the effort calculus really quite different. So moms are managing three different three different things here: the milk, um, and the the pump itself, and then cleaning the pump parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it seems like a lot, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I always have to kind of watch myself. I don't want to seem like I'm disapproving. But I do have to wonder, uh, doesn't this, isn't this like 
uh, double duty here. You do all the stuff that you would have to do in order to to uh, feed the baby, and then you've got to do all of the the getting and the cleaning and so forth. It feels like a big task to me. So it we, is a bit. It is a big yeah. task, and yeah. some of this task could be shared. Sure, um, sure. With, with uh, the a partner, um, but some of it's pretty hard to share with a with a partner. And I don't disapprove either. Women really like the freedom that pumping gives them for understandable reasons. Sure. But they certainly told Dr. Felice that they didn't like the um, all the extra effort and time that was required to to pump successfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the maternal aspect. And I know that your interests do tend to go towards the maternal aspect. But... What are the ad- advantages and the disadvantages? I might go so far as to use the word consequences that you have seen in your research and that your uh, colleagues have seen as related to the milk expression. Well, one of the big questions that we've had is if women are able to pump, would they actually wind up giving their baby more of their milk than they would if they breastfed, if they were able to feed at the breast. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., this is strongly related to the to access to adequate maternity leave. To mention um, um, the shadow in the room here, all around us is that is the lack of adequate maternity leave. Um, if women had adequate maternity leave, they would be able to stay home if they wished um, for some reasonable period of time. And then perhaps they return to work. Perhaps they would still be breastfeeding at that time. So when you pump, you're, when women pump, they are making it possible for themselves to go back to work sooner. So the question is, are they going to continue to pump longer? And there are a couple of us who have tried to figure this out. And we don't have an experiment to do this with. Um, it's really very difficult to do, but the data that we have so far that says women who pump for elective reasons, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. want to go out, my classic example, it doesn't seem to make much difference how long they breastfeed. But women who pump for non-elective reasons, those are women who um, will probably pump for a shorter period Be- because they have to, they're pumping more intensely um, it's more of a, the more you um, pump for non-elective reasons, the less attractive pumping is to you because you probably really didn't get to choose. That's what non-elective means. Right. Um, right. And these are women who are pumping more times a day, more days of the week, et cetera. So in that comparison, using national data from this Infant Feeding Practices Study 2 with her elective versus non-elective um, Dr. Felice was not able to show that women who pumped um, uh, had transfer, uh, kept transferring their milk longer than women who uh, were pumping for elective reasons. Then there's another graduate student that I've worked with who um, did her work at the University of North Carolina, Jennifer Yorkovich, oh, and her work is partially published now. But what um, she found is the women who pumped most intensely at the outset in the early period are the women who breastfed for less time than women who pumped less intensively early on. That could be a marker for inadequate maternity leave. 
Mm. Working didn't seem to affect this much because it, that um, the in, the intense pumping seemed to be associated with shorter breastfeeding. Now, whether the pumping is the cause of the shorter breastfeeding or what caused the women to pump is associated with the shorter breastfeeding mm. is less clear. Less clear. Because women yep. may be yep. pumping because they have problems, the baby has problems with latch or the baby was premature or they have a particularly difficult work circumstance that is going to make um, transferring human milk to that baby just harder. I saw that in your uh, existing study here where you said about the latch. And I was thinking, whoa, 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 this is this is fixable. Uh, it makes me wonder if women have gotten enough help to get the baby latched. It makes me wonder if we hospital people are doing a terrible job of getting the baby, as I like to say, early and often. Uh, and I, I, I do. I think there's there's reasonably good uh, research as well as my own clinical experience that's that shows that when you have these less than optimal hospital practices. Getting the baby to latch is more difficult. So it does make me ask myself that question. Do we need to look at, uh, I, I could show you mothers who say, oh, no, I came home from the hospital and I started uh, pumping right away because he never latched. And then, of course, they just use the pump and then they are full-time pumpers. Uh, I noticed, though, that you were saying uh, in your study about how I think what you meant at the bottom of page nine there, I think you were saying that the because human milk changes across the days, the months, mm-hmm. the years, which we which we know it does. Mm-hmm. I, I think you were saying that sometimes what ends up is that these babies do not get the milk that is well aligned, the, the components of the milk that are supposed to be at that age are not well aligned with what the baby is when he actually consumes the milk because the mother has kept it. And so that's like another whole thing. Okay, uh, so let's let's separate these two ideas. Let's put okay, a, sure. put the delayed milk in another category and, and let's just just talk about the, the pumping and the latch issue. Okay. And you suggested that we either might have a problem with the support that women get in hospitals and mm-hmm. we might have a problem after they go home. And both of those are possibly true because not all of our hospital obstetric staff are trained in giving nursing support. We are up to something between a quarter and a third of our hospitals are baby friendly. And that's thanks to a real push from the Centers for Disease Control led by Larry Grummerstrom to Mm -hmm. increase the number of such hospitals. On the flip side, we have something like six or nine times more um, IBCLCs, um, fully qualified lactation consultants, than we had 10 or 15 years ago, but they don't begin to meet the demand that women have uh, for help. So women who have help, who have problems need to recognize them, they need to be able to reach out for help, and they need to be able to access the help. The care care provider needs to be able to see them now and at a price they can afford. 
Oh, well stated. Very well stated. Hey, everybody, you know what? Uh, Dr. Rasmussen and I could probably talk forever, but the truth is we are so out of time today. We are absolutely out of time. So I have to wrap up really, really quick by saying thank you, thank you to Dr. Kathleen Rasmussen. Thank you for coming on the show. May it was my pleasure. A lot of fun talking to you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And for those of you who are out there listening, just remember your baby was born to be breastfed. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.